Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Pam Houston is a widely celebrated Western author of short stories, novels, and essays. Her writing is inextricably tied to land. In particular, her 120-acre ranch in the high Rockies of Creed, Colorado. She teaches at the Institute of American Indian Arts, is a professor of English at UC Davis, and is a co-founder and creative director of the literary nonprofit Writing by Writers. We discussed her books, the decision to commit to a piece of land, her experience as a doll sheep hunting guide in Alaska, her upcoming projects, and the future of her Colorado ranch. I highly recommend Pam's memoir, Deep Creek, and I look forward to reading more of her work, including the most recent called Air Mail, which she co-wrote with Amy Irvine. As usual, I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Pam Houston, Western author. Uh, Pam, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Aside from being an author, you're a teacher, um, but I know you primarily from your book, Deep Creek, which uh, I read last year and and really loved. And I'll tell you the story about reading that here in a little bit. But um, yeah, I wanted to catch up with you about your your writing and your attachment to the land, which has taken you to a lot of different places in your life. And you're uniquely uniquely qualified to talk about loving land, um, based on the subject matter of your books. Um, so I really appreciate you meeting with me. Oh, thanks. Uh, happy to be here. And yeah, um, I, my entire artistic life, I would say is driven by my relationship with the land, or at least that's where everything always starts, whether it's the ranch and Creed, which is the subject of Deep Creek or, you know, lots of other Lots of other bits of land I have loved, even if only briefly, over the course of my life. I feel like my stories rise up out of what I notice in the landscape, quite literally. Um, and mm -hmm. then, you know, things like character and narrative arc and so forth always come later. Yeah. And what I find interesting, uh, one of my favorite parts about Deep Creek was the the kind of growing pains of moving from, you're from New Jersey, um, you, you traveled extensively in your uh, 20s, but then settling down and buying this ranch. Can you tell me about that period of your life and that decision to commit when you'd been kind of running for a long time to commit to a piece of land and knowing that you were going to have a 30-year mortgage on it? Yeah, I, I sure can. Um, I was about to drop out of graduate school. <laughs> um, I, I was in graduate school in Utah and, um, and my work was really kind of reviled there by my teachers. And so in my last year of graduate school, which was the same year that Cowboys Are My Weakness came out, my first book, um, it was just kind of a perfect storm that made me walk out of graduate school. But when I sold um, Cowboys Are My Weakness, I sold Cowboys Are My Weakness for $21,000, which is only a significant number in that it was the most money I'd ever seen in one place in my <laughs> life by far. I was a graduate student making $4,500 a year. And when my agent gave me the check, she said, don't spend it all on hiking boots um, because she kind of knew me. And so I just got it in my head that like I had to do something big and important with this $21,000 because it might be the only $21,000 I'd ever have. And so I left graduate school. I mean, I, it was all but the dregs of graduate school left. My, my dissertation was, um, was Cowboys Are My Weakness. So I had essentially finished my work. I just didn't stay around to get the degree. And 
Um, and so I drove all over the American West. You know, I, I went to the coast and went Oregon, Washington, Northern California, Montana, Idaho, drove all around looking for this place to put down my $21,000. It sounds so silly now, especially this year with what real estate's doing. But I was like, this is it, you know? And um, what were you looking was for actually, in, in a piece of land? What were your criteria? Well, well, you know, I was 30 years old and I had basically lived in a North Face VE24 tent most of my life. So I, I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, I mean, I had no idea what I was looking for. <laughs> I was freaked out by the success of Cowboys. And I think I wanted to be at the end of a dirt road, which is what I found. Um, but it was actually the writers, Robert Boswell and Tony Nelson, who told me about Creed. They had heard Creed was cool, this little town in near the headwaters of the Rio Grande in Colorado. And so I was driving all through Colorado. I mean, every little town you can think of, I had visited basically in the West that summer. And I was driving around in my Toyota Corolla. I was giving readings at small independent bookstores and looking at property. And um, I got to Creed and a lady took me around to look at property and as we were driving, I, I was honest with everybody. I didn't know how to buy real estate. I didn't know that most people lie about their circumstances. I just said my circumstances. I was like, well, I've got this check for $21,000 and I have no job. And I just dropped out of grad school and my first <laughs> book is doing well, but I haven't written a second one. And, you know, I was just honest with everybody. And so this woman took me around and showed me, you know, some five acre empty lots where the wind blew all the time and so forth. And, and then she kept saying, I should take you out to see the Blair Ranch. And I was like, all right. And she said, but you know, a single woman living at the end of a dirt road. And I was like, that could work. And she's like, well, you know, frankly, you can't afford it. And I was like, all right. And so we went back to town and I was ready to drive on and go to Ure or Durango or wherever was next on the list. And, uh, and as I was literally sitting in my car, looking at the Rand McNally, uh, this sort of tall rodeo belt buckle wearing dude came up and knocked on my window. And he's like, I hear you want to see the Blair Ranch. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And he's like, well, get in my truck. You know, so out we go to the Blair Ranch and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's 120 acres surrounded by 12,000 foot mountains on all sides. It has a creek called Lime Creek running through the center of it that is just, you know, a five minute walk from the Rio Grande. It's got this beautiful old barn. And the barn is the thing, like even now that clutches at my heart. Um, and a very simple house and uh, mostly meadow, mostly high mountain meadow. And I just fell completely in love with it. And the asking price of it, which had just been lowered, made my $21,000, which was literally everything I had in the world, uh, just about 5% down. Wow. And um, that must have been a good investment for you. And, um, <laughs> I mean, considering what real estate is like now in that area. Right. That's true. And um, this realtor said, I think Donna Blair is going to like the idea of you. So why don't you give me your 5% down and a signed hardcover copy of Cowboys are my weakness. <laughs> and I'll see what I can do. And um, a couple days later, Donna Blair sold me the ranch for 5% down and a signed copy of Cowboys are my weakness. Uh, and most importantly, she carried the note herself because no bank in the world would have financed me um, with 5% down and no job <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a book of short stories in the world and not three pages of another book to rub together. And so, um, and so the ranch became uh, mine and not, I mean, 5% mine. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then I had a big mortgage to pay. Um, and that was 30 years ago. 
And she believed in me, you know, and, and I thought, well, if she believes in me, maybe I believe in myself. I mean, it was a crazy thing to do. It you know, was. not only had I never owned any property, I, I essentially lived in my car, you know, I mean, that's not really true. I mean, in grad school, I lived in a tiny apartment, but, but anytime I was, as you say, on the road or checking things out or gathering information for my stories, which were months and months at a time, I was living in my tent, in my car. And I went from that to 120 acre ranch. So none of it made sense, but, um, but it's a place that grew me up and taught me how to be responsible and paying that mortgage about killed me, as you can imagine, 5%. That's why they don't take 5% down. Yeah. That was one <laughs> and, of the fascinating uh, parts of the book was you, you know, you finally kind of settle down or you're, you're looking to, you find this piece of property and then to pay your mortgage, you got to go do all sorts of things and take all kinds of gigs and you're running right. around for the next 30 years to pay that thing off. <laughs> yeah. Well, not quite 30, but 20. Yeah. 25 is right. Um, I, and you know, the, the, the truth about that is I, I'm a mover, you know, I like to move. I like to be in different landscapes. As I said, you know, my work rises out of different landscapes. So I wasn't crying my eyes out over having to go place other places to work. I mean, yeah. I always missed the ranch when I was gone. And of course I raise animals. And so that's always a worry, but the truth is it was a pretty good life, you know, like having the ranch to come home to and still getting to be out in the world, um, you know, teaching and eating sushi and going to see art films and the things I got to do in cities that you can't do in Creed. Yeah. Tell me about some of the places that, um, their writing has taken you. I mean, I know that you're you're also doing a ton of teaching, and you have done for for quite some time. Um, what is a typical, you know, this past couple of years aside, what does a typical year look for, like for you versus you know being on the ranch versus traveling, writing, you know? I always thought I probably averaged a hundred days a year at the ranch um, in a normal year. I teach at UC Davis uh, in the grad program and the undergrad program there, but only half time, which means I'm there either one or two quarters out of four. Um, I teach at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe in the grad program, and that's low residency. So I'm here in Santa Fe, which is where I'm talking to you from, about 30 days a year for mm. that. Um, I run a nonprofit called Writing by Writers, which puts on about eight events a year uh, that are anywhere from three days to two weeks long. And those events occur in Sitka, Alaska and Tahoe and Boulder and Point Reyes, California and Chamonix, France. <laughs> so th that in a in in a normal year, I bounce around to those places as well. Beautiful. And then I teach. Um, otherwise, I I teach every year at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I um, I often teach uh, at a arts retreat in Wisconsin. Um, sometimes Michigan, you know. So. And if anyone asks me to teach like anywhere abroad, I always say yes, no matter, <laughs> no matter what they're paying me or, you know, what the circumstances are, because I'm, you know, I am, I'm a, I love to move. I love to travel. And, um, so anyway, about a hundred days a year at the ranch, some years more, some years less. If I have a book out, I might only spend 60 days at the ranch, you know, mm. if I'm touring for a book. Um, and a lot of that time is during the winter, right? At least in the book, it seems like you, you always tried to be in Creed um, in the high winter so you could take care of the animals. Yeah, that's right. I, I never teach at Davis, for instance, winter quarter. I teach fall and or spring. We're on quarters at Davis still. So that means I'm always home December, January, and February. And, and that's exactly why. It's like things break and you know, animals get snowbound and there's just a lot of reasons why the most dangerous time for the animals is the dead of winter. And, uh, so I always try to be there then. What kind of animals, uh, what do you have out there right now? You still have sheep, you still have your Irish wolfhounds. What's going on up there right now? 
Yes, uh, two Irish wolfhounds, um, a quarter horse, a pasifino, a miniature donkey, uh, eight chickens, one of them is a rooster, and um, six Icelandic sheep. Wow. And Mr. Kitty, and Mr. Kitty. I, uh, yeah, I love the way you write about animals. Um, I, there's one book of yours that I'm avoiding, admittedly, um, Sight Hound, because I know I can't handle it emotionally. <laughs> I've yeah. got a seven-year-old golden retriever, and I'm just not ready to, uh, to read that book right now. <laughs> no, I understand. I can anticipate um, that, that it'll be upsetting to me, but um, I think I'm really eyeballing. I was going to ask you what I should read next. I'm, I'm really looking at... Um, You've got so many. Let me see which one it is. Uh, a little bit more about me. Can you tell me about mm-hmm. that book? Yeah, I can. Um, it's That book is actually a collection of essays. So that's my other non, non-fiction book. I put that in air quotes because so much of my fiction is autobiographical. Those lines are really blurred in my work, but, but it's technically or officially my other non-fiction book. And Um, You know, it was really just an amalgamation of essays that I was writing other places. I mean, they're they're consciously chosen. There's some essays about the ranch, um, but there's a whole section of travel essays because at the time that book came out, I was really working as a travel writer. So there's a Bolivia essay and a Bhutan essay and a France essay and a Laos essay. so there's that there's there's a section about body image and you know um aging women aging and how they kind of step into their own power as they age you know so it's 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 a it wasn't a consciously made book except that the essays were consciously chosen out of the vast amount of essays i wrote when i was trying to pay for the ranch (laughs) and um and also, you know, organized around different themes in the different sections. So it's uh, yeah. it, it it it's an it's a collection of essays in the truest sense. It's not meant to hang together as a memoir. Yeah, I really want to hear more about some of those experiences. You alluded to them and, and quickly covered some of them in Deep Creek, but specifically the the experience in Alaska as a doll sheep hunting guide. Um, that's fascinating to me. That is like. For hunters, I mean, that's sort of the mecca of difficulty and uh, extreme rugged terrain. I mean, that's a, a dream hunt for most people. And you did how many of them as a guide? Um, I did four seasons and usually probably four hunts a season. So I would say 16. I might be off by one or two in either direction. but Hardcore. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty hardcore <laughs> back in the day. I mean, those hunts for those who don't know, are, you know, one guide, one hunter, 10 days. And you do nothing but climb (laughs) (laughs) because the sheep are really good climbers and they're really, really smart. So, and even then, uh, even with one hunter, one one guide for 10 days, you really only kill 20 to 30% of the time. So, it's um, it's a wonderful way to be in the Alaskan bush for a long time. Um, and I was, yeah, I was super fit back in the day. Um, <laughs> and that was an amazing experience. I, one of the greatest of my life. And there's a short story in um, Cowboys Are My Weakness, which is my first book called Doll that you, that you might like. That oh, is, I didn't realize that, that. That was actually in certain ways, it was the first it was the first hardest story i ever wrote like some of the stories in cowboys like um for instance how to talk to a hunter which was the story that kind of gave me my career that story kind of dropped out of the sky into my computer like i i felt like i wrote it so insanely easily but doll which is my favorite story in that collection took me more than a year to write it was such a it was, it was, I really feel like I learned how to write writing that story, or I learned, I learned what stories do writing that story. So if you're interested in that, you might like that story in particular. I am. Okay. That's great. Yeah. I, are you still doing any hunting? Um, it, I, in the book, I don't remember you describing any hunting. No. Um, you know, I really never hunted per se myself. I only guided hunters. I'm definitely not anti-hunting, you know, I'm a meat eater. Um, 
Okay. And I believe in, in ethical hunting for sure. Um, and of course I live in the West surrounded by hunters, but I, um, I, you know, I never pulled the trigger. I never shot an animal and I, and I, and I don't think I would have liked to, I, I didn't feel terrible when the hunters killed. In fact, there was a certain celebration in that, especially if they were, you know, uh, again, ethical hunters who were there to understand their relationship to the rest of the, the, uh, natural world, you know, which most of them were. Cause if you, if you spend the money and the time to kill a doll sheep, you, you're either you're just uber wealthy or you understand that relationship because it's not an easy thing, you know, to do is to kill a doll sheep. Um, and so, so again, but I just never, like one day we came upon this ram and we had already killed and it was a total record book ram. And, you know, I always carried a, a permit just in case, you know, things went crazy. And, you know, the hunters I was with was like, shoot it, shoot it. And I was like, that, there's just no reason for me to shoot. It. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I, like, I don't, I, I like, yeah, like you'd be in the record books. I was like, I don't care, you know? And so that was like my moment where I might have shot something, but I guided, you know, I guided for sheep for four years. I guided for whitetail in Montana for the same four years after the sheep season. And I just never, you know, like I said, like I wasn't, freaked out when you know the hunters killed though of course there's all that's always a moment that's an emotional moment for everyone who cares about wildlife including the hunters but but i just never had the urge so anyway no you know i didn't go on to then hunt elk in my backyard which i could have easily done you know Um, but no so so many people in around me hunted there was just never a need you know so you are a meat eater. Are you raising any animals for meat or mainly just kind of getting it from neighbors? Where do you get your meat? Um, you know, I raise Icelandic sheep mostly for the wool. Um, occasionally we'll kill a young ram because if you have too many rams, you have trouble. Um, hence the name ram. Um, but, uh, but no, I, you know, I get meat from my neighbors. I get meat delivered from a grass-fed organic organization in eastern Colorado that sends a box of meat a month you know I like I try to buy meat ethically um but and I'm not like I don't mean you know I walk around with a leg of lamb in my hand but I but I'm not a vegetarian and so you know I I'm not therefore anti-hunting okay yeah um I do want to talk about kind of the the restoration of this property and and back to the connection to the land and it's the way that it comes across in your writing. Um, it, it seems like in deep Creek learning about the history of the Blair ranch and the people that were there before really strengthened your personal connection to it. Is that a fair, uh, statement? And you're nodding. Yeah. And what, uh, and how did you kind of learn to hone that skill about, uh, that skill of, of writing about landscape, because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, in a way that feels like two really different questions. I mean, uh, I knew really very little about the early history of the ranch until I went to write Deep Creek and I really dug in and investigated because that stuff isn't sitting around, you know, um, there is a good historical museum in Creed and they were really helpful, but the guy who lived on the ranch for 60 years, Robert Pinkley, was um, a total recluse. He went to town for two weeks a year. A friend of his came, he didn't have a car. A friend of his came out and got him and drove him to town and dropped him off where he got drunk and caroused and went crazy for two weeks. And then the guy drove him back out to the ranch. This is a 12 mile journey. And that was it. And so no one really knew him. Um, A few nice people in town brought him vegetables occasionally because (laughs) he just shot elk out the window of his cabin and that was all he ever ate. Um, People brought him clothes 
from the Valley, the San Luis Valley, like Walmart or, or, you know, probably pre Walmart, but <laughs> if there was such a time, but people brought him like new jeans and new shirts and stuff. And after he died, they found it all in piles with the tag still on. Like wow. he was a weird dude and, um, and a curmudgeon, you know, and, uh, but, you know, loved the land, loved his horses, loved to shoot elk out his window, like loved the life on the ranch. But very few people knew him. Very few people had any stories about him. A few people did, and I found those. But it took a lot of research and effort to even dig up as much as it is in that book, which isn't very much, you know. <laughs> And, and so that was interesting, you know, before that, I felt like I kind of felt the history of the land. And there is a, you know, they say Bob's ghost um, is around. And some of my friends who've stayed at the ranch have like interacted with him, had conversations. I've never seen him, but I feel like I kind of feel him. Like I feel, I feel his approval or disapproval when I make certain decisions <laughs> about what to do at the ranch. And you know, so there's an intuitive relationship to what happened before. Um, the other half of the question, like, how did I learn to write about the land? You know, that even predates the ranch. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. living in a place for 30 years, which is now how long I've been at the ranch, you know, there's a kind of sinking into the landscape that can't happen if you fly into Bolivia and you're there for 21 days, you know, but but noticing the landscape is kind of my stock and trade like it's how i it's what i teach about it's how you know everything i write even as a kid like i had this intense relationship with the jersey shore or i had this intense relationship with the woods behind my house um uh, my parents weren't particularly great at parenting and no <laughs> um which is kind of an understatement and yeah and so i learned to be parented literally by the trees and the ground and the ocean and the mountains. And to this day, um, if I'm having a really bad day, like I will go out and lay on the ground under a tree and like curl up and feel parented by the earth. It, it, it sounds like a cliche, but it's literally what I do. And, um, and so in a certain way, like I write about the earth the same way other people write about their families. Like it, mm it is my family, you know? And so I watch it all the time, the way some people watch their parents, you know? And so it was just natural that that's where my work began. Like I didn't really have to learn it because I had always been paying that sort of strict attention to the natural world, even from when I was a little, little kid. Wow. That definitely comes across. I, um, I told you, I would, I would tell you the story of reading Deep Creek. It was, on my honeymoon uh, a year and a half ago and I'm on a hot beach in Costa Rica, but you know, I'm face down in this book in Creed, Colorado, you know, in my mind in the cold, it was so vivid, uh, the imagery and the trials and tribulations of surviving in this landscape, um, which were many and, and, fears and threats that you don't really think about most people don't think about uh what were some of the hard lessons you had to learn moving to that place and learning how to how to ranch and how to work this land well i think the hardest thing of all and i say this in the book but like what you learn on a ranch is that the sweetest things die you know um mm. and there isn't there's really no way around that, you know? And I, I just read it in another manuscript that I was reading yesterday, like where someone said, oh, it must be to someone else, you know, it must be so great to live out here on the ranch. And the woman who was tending this other ranch said, well, there's a lot of death. And, you know, that's the truth. Like that's far and away the hardest thing is that like bears come or coyotes kill the chickens or the meaner donkey bullies the sweeter donkey to death. Like there are just things that happen that even if you're doing best practices, even if you're taking every precaution, still sweet things will die and they'll die often. Yeah. And um, being up close to that fact for years and years and years takes its toll. Um, 
Otherwise, you know, the things are kind of funny. Like I didn't know that one had to sweep a chimney (laughs) (laughs) until my roof caught on fire. Um, You know, I didn't really understand that when they said I had to coat the logs with that UV protector or the 9,000 foot solar rays would eat the logs. I didn't think they really meant every year, but they did. (laughs) They meant every single year. Um, You know, things like that. You know, there were times back in the day, this isn't true anymore because we get so much less snow than we used to, but 25 years ago, you know, that old story about the the farmer who gets lost in the blizzard between the barn and the house, you know, even though it's only a couple hundred yards, like I've had that experience. I mean, not, not that I couldn't get, I couldn't, I didn't know where the house was. I knew where the house was, but I couldn't see it. And I was post holing to my hips. And if I fell into the snow, like I might not be able to get up, you know, that amount of snow. Like, so there were things like that, you know, broken water pipes, uh, hauling water to the barn for 20 animals when it's 35 below zero, you know? Uh, Most of the extremes are the winter, Um, though recently, most of the extremes are fire season. And that's a big change that's happened in the 30 years I've been there. Like now I worry more about June at the ranch than I do about January. And that's a big change uh, in the time I've lived there. Well, that was one of my next questions. I'm recently um, relocated to, to Colorado and having to worry about things that I didn't have to worry about before, including um, I'm, I'm hearing that it's going to be potentially a really bad year for wildfires. You're someone who has has been through it. In the book, you've got a long chapter called Diary of a Fire that details your experience with the South Fork fire. Um, uh, no, actually the West Fork fire. West Fork fire, thank you. Encroaching on, you know, burning up all this uh, this public land, encroaching on your property and the harrowing kind of experience of, um, you know, hoping that this land is going to survive and, and kind of coming, well, I say survive, but not get burned up, uh, and coming to terms with the destruction kind of, um, in the, in the wake of that fire, what's it been like exploring the, the land around your property? Well, um, you know, the West Fork fire burned 109,000 acres. It went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. We were on standby to evacuate. Um, it burned the entire mountain to the west of me, almost right down, not quite to my property line, but close. As I said, I live in a big meadow. And one of the things I learned during the West Fork fire is that that's the really good news. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a meadow will stop a fire. and. Um, and so, you know, since then that was 2013, since then it's been beautiful and amazing to go up there onto that mountain, which is called Baldy and, um, and see the regen, the regeneration, you know, um, there are places that will now be meadows where regeneration can take place. There are places where the ground is just scorched, uh, you know, almost melted. Uh, where the fire was super hot, but there are other places where, you know, a million aspen trees are now taller than me or um, a bunch of blue spruce are three feet tall. So um, you see what you see when you go up there is that, you know, fire is part of the natural system and the land will recover in its own way. Now, it's part of the natural system, but of course we've messed with that. You know, we suppressed fire for a hundred years we're building our houses. I mean, not me particularly, but people are building their houses up inside the forest, you know, and so we have to suppress those fires. Like, and and then of course there's the climate catastrophe that we're in the middle of. So all of those things are making fire much bigger, much more volatile, much faster, much harder to control. Yeah. But my husband, the forest ranger always tells me, you know, fire is a natural part of the cycle. And big fires every 200 years is exactly what that forest wants to do, which is not to say that he's in any way a climate denier. He's not, (laughs) but he is saying that like fire is part of it. And, you know, one of the things, a couple things that I really learned during the West Fork fire and 
during other fires before that, we had big fires in, in 2002 as well, but they didn't get quite as close to the ranch as the West Fork fire did. One of the things I learned is that, you know, first of all, the ranch itself is pretty safe because of how it's configured. Um, and also that, um, you know, that, that things come back and they come back really fast. You know, we had fireweed three weeks after the fire was out, you know, and then wow. we had these baby aspen trees the next spring. So, um, yeah, the soil you know, is just, it's ready for it and it has a, yeah. an immediate response. I mean, I don't mean in any way to say, you know, it's okay. And we're not in big trouble because we are clim climactically. Um, but one of the things you learn about fire is that, you know, nature is always in process. And, and so, I've seen it. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons that fire was so dramatic was because of the beetle kill. Um, and the beetle kill is definitely a result of climate change. So like, but if you step out of the box even further, like that's nature trying to save itself. Like nature's like, okay, I've got like a hundred million dead trees standing here. <laughs> and if I put a little lightning on it, you know, we're going to get rid of those dead trees. We're going to feed the soil. We're going to start all over again. Let's do that. You know, so it's, it, it's, it's not, you know, you see all this stuff where like, oh, you know, this will never be beautiful again. It's not true. It's no. so beautiful right now. Like in the fall, <laughs> you see all the burned on Baldy, which is just out my bedroom window. You see all the burned stumps, which many of which are still standing. And then you see all the small aspen trees turning color and it looks like, you know, Andy Goldsworthy, like it looks like someone did it on purpose. It's so beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I, um, had a good conversation a couple episodes ago, uh, with my friend Connor Coleman about fire and kind of those long cycles and, um, coming to terms with that. It's, it's difficult to understand in our life cycle and it, it feels like destruction, but, um, I think once you, kind of educate yourself and understand the larger implications. It's kind of a beautiful thing. But as you say, of course, we, we're we causing um, fires that are now larger, more volatile, more frequent due to the way that we develop and, and things like that. Uh, I do want to, there's a few things I want to touch on, make sure that we don't forget. This, this past year, you started a, a new project and you've written all sorts of kind of different styles you've written in first person second person memoirs novels um this year you did a little bit uh, something a little bit different can you tell me about that experience yeah um when the pandemic happened when it began um you know and and i was in creed you know way more than 100 days in 2020 i was in creed almost all the days in 2020 um but orion magazine beautiful magazine of culture and science um asked a f another western writer another colorado writer named amy irvine if she would be part of this series they were doing during the pandemic called together apart which where they were gonna ask pairs of writers to write letters to each other during the pandemic since we couldn't be together. And they asked her who she wanted to correspond with and she said me. And so we started writing letters. We didn't know each other. She knew my work and I knew her work. In fact, I had blurbed her last book, which is called Desert Cabal, which is a kind of talk back to Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire. And so we knew each other's work, but we had never met. And so we started to write letters and Orion wanted, I think, 3000 words. And that went very quickly. And we understood right away that we were doing something that was keeping us sane and keeping us connected. And, you know, we acknowledged that we were lucky that we got to spend the pandemic in this, in a place of beauty where we could still go out and walk around. This is when people were literally locked inside their homes in many states and many countries. Yeah. Um, you know, we acknowledged our privilege, but we also talked about our fears and our fears for the planet and our fears, um, you know, at the way that the pandemic was being sort of willfully mismanaged. 
So we got into politics, but also we just talked about loving the land and our daily experiences of hiking on it. And we just decided we wanted to keep writing. And there wasn't any thought that there would be a book at that time. We just were getting to know each other. We were kind of establishing a sisterhood. We had so much in common about the way we interacted with the land and the way that we saw how art gets made out of the land. So it was kind of this great match. And so we kept writing, we kept writing. And um, and then all of a sudden we had 40,000 words <laughs> instead of 3,000. And it was kind of then that we were like, okay, maybe this is something, like maybe we have something here. And we are both um, progressive Democrats and you know, the election was looming. And we just had this thought, like maybe if we talked about our love of the land and our love of clean air and our love of clean water and our fear for our landscape, that um, we could make some small difference in the election, especially for people like us, like maybe people who live in mountain towns who don't get that involved politically necessarily. And so uh, we called Amy's Press because we knew this was May, like we finished, or we didn't, we still write letters, but we had gotten to this kind of possible end point at the end of May. And we thought, well, if the book's to come out before the election, you know, we can't take it to New York. We can't take it to a big press. It'll never happen in time. And Amy mm -hmm. had worked with this wonderful press in Southern Utah or Utah, all over Utah called uh, Tory House Press, which is an all women press. Their motto is voices for the land. And they said, yes. And then we just jumped into editing and, you know, we turned around this book in like no time. It went to press in early June. It came out in September and it's just our letters. And we tried not to edit too heavily. You know, we wanted to get the feel of the realness of the letters. Um, and then we went on the funniest book tour ever, which where we were dodging literally fires that were popping up everywhere in September and COVID outbreaks. And so we would give readings outside and people would come with their masks and there would be ashes raining down on us. And we would <laughs> be like, let's save the earth, you know? <laughs> and, um, and we did about 15 events in the fall, you know, all outside, all masked. People were so happy to see us because, you know, they hadn't done anything in six months. Yeah. So it was an amazing project. You know, it, it's so linked with the pandemic in my mind and like how to survive a pandemic well you find a new girlfriend and you write letters like and um it was just a wonderful experience it, all the way around i love that uh, how is it formatted is it linear like uh how the yeah. letters were actually written yeah the letters are dated um and uh yeah it's just linear it's um we talked a lot about she lives just on the west side of the continental divide like as the crow flies were probably only 75 miles apart, but it would take like four and a half hours to drive around. So we talked about crows um, sending our letters back and forth, although we were using the internet in, in, in actuality. But, um, and, and then inside the book, whenever she speaks, her sort of uh, avatar is a Stellar's Jay and mine is a Kingfisher. And so there's little, there's beautiful drawings. Um, by a wonderful artist, um, and uh, it's just a it's a it's a pretty little object. It's small. You can put it in your back pocket, actually, barely if you have a big back pocket. Um, but it was it was a great thing to be doing. And now we're friends. Now we've met, but we hadn't ever met when the book went to press. You know, we sort of met on the book tour in a way. A lot of uh, unique art came out of this i i saw new mediums and just new strange collaborations and things like that that never would have uh, would have come about so you know another i think kind of silver lining i think there was something i mean i know i feel it and i've talked to so many of my writer friends you know there was something in that moment it's like a cancer scare or a car accident that you survive you know <laughs> Like once you sort of realize that our time is so limited and that idea is up in your face the way it was during the pandemic, it seems insane not to make the art you wanna make. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like as artists, we always talk about how free we are and what mavericks we are. But the fact is we're often, you know, 
trying to please an editor or trying to please a publisher or trying to like think about ourselves in terms of well, what would be the next logical career thing or at least our agents are saying that to us and we're like okay well yeah i should do that next and you know for me anyway the pandemic just blew that all out of the water it's just like do whatever you want for whoever you want like that's why you're an artist dummy and and i <laughs> you know i teach for a living you know i teach all the time i love teaching it's what gives me life so i don't I don't need to like, you know, make money per se on my books. Like I can, I can write whatever book I want because my income comes from teaching and I'm set there, like not set, but I have regular income, which I did on purpose so that it would free the art. But then yeah. uh, the art didn't, wasn't that free, you know, like I was always negotiating with myself about that. And I think the pandemic really kick that up a notch my desire to just let the art be what it wants to be and this project was all about that good um what we talked a little bit about your range as an author uh different voices different tenses you're not just a novelist uh you're kind of writing all sorts of things you're teaching all sorts of different styles uh from what i understand what when you sit down to write a book and maybe we could talk about whatever you're getting into next or your next idea if you're working on something else uh what informs that decision on how you're going to approach it what kind of book you're going to write and if you're going to speak in first person second person things like that yeah you know um i kind of just let things come out in terms of those sorts of decisions I kind of just let things come out in draft the way they come out. And then I might change them later, you know, again, because I always start with landscape because I always start with physical description of the physical world. It's kind of not important to me at the beginning, whether it's first person or second person, you know, I just kind of let it come out the way it comes out. And that feels like a set of decisions I make later. Having said that, my new project is a collection of short stories that I've actually been working on for a while uh in between deep creek and in between airmail and they are they are third person stories and it's the first time i've really worked in the third person and i kind of think i just had to be a certain age you know I, like that's how it feels to me I, I felt like the third person wasn't appealing to me and i didn't really understand its range until now even though of course many of my favorite books are written in the third person it just didn't feel natural for me. First person and second person felt much more natural. These stories are written in fairly close third person uh, to the narrator. And so in that they're not that different than first person, but they give me just a little distance that's allowing me, and this sounds crazy, but it's allowing me to really make some stuff up, which I haven't done much in my life. You know, my my yeah. fiction is really based on stuff that actually happened. But in this book, I'm letting that slide some. And I'm letting this woman, Maggie, my character, have experiences that I have not necessarily had. And some that I have had. Um, because again, all my work begins in experience. But the other day I was writing one of these stories and I was like, oh man, it would be cool if Maggie had a sister. And then I invented a sister for her, which is not something I generally do, you know? So the third person is allowing me to move away from my actual experience. Again, not that the stories don't start there, but as the stories develop. So it kind of just feels like a new tool that I'm having fun with. And it's weird that I'm almost 60 years old and I'm just discovering the third person, but I was really happy in the first and the second for two different reasons or for many different reasons, but um, with the second, I always loved the way it kind of picks up the reader and forces them onto the page. And I also really like the way it has this kind of thin layer of shame over the narrative that, mm. um, that you don't have to say the narrator is ashamed if she's using the second person. It's kind of obvious that she doesn't want to say I. And then the first person was just natural because I was writing about my own experiences and my narrators were some version of me having those experiences. So, so I was really comfortable and happy there.
But now that I'm in the third person, I think like I might write a novel that doesn't have anything to do with me, like not right now, but maybe soon. And that just feels like taking a giant sidestep from everything I've done before. But back to that idea of the pandemic, like why not? Like why not try something totally new that you might have fun with? That's exciting. Um, I, I saw an interview in my research uh, saw an interview where you were saying people were kind of shocked when you released Deep Creek and they were like, whoa, your parents were terrible. And you were like, yeah, no shit. Have you not been reading? <laughs> All that stuff was about me. <laughs> right, right. No, it was. It was funny. You know, it was funny. It, it, and I guess, you know, I mean, I think writers understand so deeply the way that you know, real experience gets into fiction and nonfiction. And, um, you know, I know that there's lots of writers who wrote things that had nothing to do with their life that then everyone assumed it was their life. Like, I mean, I think we live in that mess all the time, but I was yeah. truly surprised when I went on tour and, and people thought that Deep Creek was like truer. <laughs> you know, then say cowboys are my weakness. And and it's not like I don't get it. I get it. Like cowboys are my weakness says fiction right on the on the spine. And Deep Creek says memoir. But that distinction doesn't really, you know, apply to me or it hasn't in the past. But maybe it will now. I mean, I don't have a sister. <laughs> and Maggie does. <laughs> um, let's talk about your upcoming in terms of um your upcoming projects. One of the things that I saw that was really exciting, you're leading a workshop at the Menno Zapata Ranch as part of Ranchlands, who I uh, was lucky enough to interview Duke Phillips in the first episode. What are your plans for that workshop and how do those usually go? Well, the Zapata Ranch is such a, a heaven, you know, <laughs> it's such a heaven on earth. I've never been. <laughs> oh, it's so amazing. You have to go down there. Um, I taught at the Zapata Ranch decades ago when the Nature Conservancy owned it. It's just a, it's a historic ranch right by the sand dunes. The actual area of the ranch house and where you stay is, you know, these giant cottonwoods. Like it just couldn't be more beautiful or iconically Western, um, iconically Southern Colorado. Um, so when I was asked to come back by Ranchlands, I was so excited and, you know, it's gonna be a, um, it's going to be a generative workshop, meaning um, it's going to be about writing new things. It's going to be about letting the landscape act upon us and writing stuff. We're going to be seeing the buffalo. We're going to be riding horses and we're going to be going to the sand dunes and we're going to be putting our feet in the aquifer. And, and then we're going to use that, those resonant moments to kind of unlock our own stories, which is you know, the process of a lot of my teaching. Sometimes I teach workshops where people bring already made work, but this won't be that. This will be generating new work through a series of exercises and allowing the beauty of the natural surroundings to help us. Wow. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So people bring work just kind of to have you critique it that has nothing to do with the workshop. <laughs> Well, sometimes workshops are designed that way. You know, sometimes oh. sometimes the gist of the workshop is you bring 20 pages and we'll critique it, you know, but that's not what this is. This is a, a generative workshop and also really experiential. Okay. Um, well, that's exciting. We, we talked just a little bit before we started recording. I, I wanted to ask you about your future plans for the ranch. Can we get into that a little bit? Sure. So you're in Santa Fe right now. Um, you were kind of explaining that things have changed up there in Creed, Colorado. Um, what what has your experience been like over the years in that community? Well, you know, Creed has always been a, a balance. It's the kind of a town where people used to say, oh, I care more about who wins the school board election than the presidential election. And and I, I think it's always been a place where people really took care of each other and, you know, put their political differences aside. And we've always had the repertory theater, which, you know, brings in a hundred young artists every summer, you know, queer kids and 
um, actors of color and like it, it takes a pretty conservative, pretty white town and, uh, and, and it gets this infusion every summer of other ways of thinking and other ways of being in the world. And I think in a way yeah. that's kept Creed kind of honest <laughs> in a way. And um, it's kind of kept the haters down. Um, last year, the theater had to cancel their, uh, their season and people got very political about mask wearing and, um, and, you know, it was shocking to me, honestly, that people didn't take very good care of each other because they, and Creed has the oldest population per capita in the state, uh, Mineral County does. And so it wow. just seemed especially sad that people wouldn't wear masks at the post office or the grocery store. Anyway, it was a, it was a kind of a moment of reckoning for me, you know, do I want to grow old there? Um, and then there's just simply the fact of like, I'm going to be 60 years old. I have 120 acres and a bunch of rams to take care of. Like one of these days I'm going to get hurt <laughs> and you know, whatever I've been hurt and I survived. But as I look forward, you know, to the next decade of my life, it's a big project to take care of that ranch. So um, what I did right around the time that Deep Creek, um, was coming out is I, at the same time that I was finishing Deep Creek, I was working on getting the ranch into, uh, getting a conservation easement on the ranch. Um, and I've done that with the organization called Right. And, and, and uh, kind of beautifully and uh, serendipitously, I guess, uh, the land easement closed literally on the publication day of Deep Creek. So, Wow. Um, it was a crazy coincidence because I don't know if you know about land easements, but like a hundred people have to cooperate, you know, the surveyor and mm. the, the environmental impact statement and the lawyers and that like, like there's so much paperwork and so many people you have to keep calling, but it all came together literally on the day on publication day of deep Creek. And so, you know, so how I feel about that is that like, I can't stay at the ranch forever, even if I wanted to, even if, um, even if I felt completely um, safe there, which, which I don't so much anymore, quite honestly. Um, even if I, even if I, you know, I, I'm gonna be too old to take care of it and not, you know, maybe not this year or maybe not even in 10 years, but what I wanted to do was like do right by the land. And so I put this land easement on it. No one will ever be able to subdivide it as long as there's a United States and as long as there's a Colorado. Um, <laughs> no one will be able to put a cell phone tower on it. No one will be able to build a 10,000 square foot house on it, a dream home that they come to four days a year. It's got a very small building window. It means of course that if and when I do sell it, you know, it will be to a certain person <laughs> like who is, who is cool with all that. And probably it, you know, I will make less money on it, but that's a very small price to pay for knowing that that piece of land is protected uh, in as much as I can protect it. So that feels really good to me. And in a way, I don't think I was conscious of this when I did it, but in a way it kind of gives me permission to leave if that's what I have to do. And, and on the one hand, that's a terrible thought. Like, the ranch is my identity and it has been for 30 years. Um, but, um, but I might want to get old around my own kind a little more. And that might mean a shift um, mm. to a place where people are more actively involved politically in the world to a place where progressive values are, um, you know, people sit in coffee shops and talk about how to help you know, the situation in, um, you know, the Middle East or, 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 you know, in Southern Colorado, <laughs> like, you know, that, that I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm kind of at a moment of indecision right now. Um, yeah. But do you have some places in mind that you're kind of eyeballing? Well, I love Santa Fe and I always have. Santa Fe has been my town, you know, the whole time I've it's lived great. in Creed. And I, I have many good friends here. I teach here at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I, um, uh, 
there's something about Santa Fe. I will say this during the pandemic, Santa Fe, the people of Santa Fe protected themselves and each other in such a beautiful way. You know, in Creed, if I went into the post office and wore a mask, I got called a name. So I just stopped going to the post office. Here during the pandemic, nobody was talking about being a patriot or not. Everybody just put their masks on, you know, like it was, it was a non-subject, you know, it was like, yeah, we're all in the grocery store with our masks on. And, um, and you know, the vaccination rate is very high here. It just feels very safe, but it was a real community effort. And I felt it, like I felt the difference. Um, when I came down here and that matters yeah. to me. Like, I think that's really what it is. I think as I grow older, I want to be in community um, because I think we've got a lot of trouble coming down the pike uh, politically and also climactically. And I think community is going to really matter. We're at different phases in our life, Pam. I'm trying to get away from people. I understand. <laughs> I'm trying to get out to the 120-acre ranch at the end of the dirt road. I totally it understand. Like <laughs> you're looking for uh, for something else, but I I I, I get that. Um, so to to kind of sum it up here, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, this podcast is about me trying to understand from people like you how do we better our relationship. To land, and that could be on an individual basis or as a nation. Um, I think you seem to have this relationship with land, like like you talked about earlier, as a parent, um, as something that nurtures and heals you. What? Uh, how do you recommend that we move forward and um, reconcile some of the damage that we've done? Um, this is another broad question, but uh, yeah, just generally, how do we improve our relationship with land? You know, there's been a lot of studies about what individuals can do about the climate and about things like clean air and water. Um, and there are things we can do. You know, we can eat a vegetable heavy diet. We can, we can recycle we can drive electric vehicles we can you know reduce the amount we fly that's a big one for me i mean i haven't flown now in a year and a half but i used to fly a lot and that's one big way yeah. i'm going to change i mean there's things we can do as individuals um for sure and i try to be conscious every day for instance of how much water i use you know i've really become conscious of how much water i use and have cut down my water use by a lot, which is, you know, we're not going to get to stay here in the West if we don't all do that. All yeah. that said, um, you know, we have to elect people who believe that climate change is real and who want to address it. You know, we're facing such a massive disaster. We're in it already. And, um, and so the question is, like, do we are we here to sit by the bedside of the dying earth, which is, is what Terry Tempest Williams, another great writer of the West says. She says, uh, Americans are so used to just figuring out how they're gonna get through something, but there is no getting through this. We're not gonna get through it. So we have to think about how we go into it, you know, how we are to each other and to the earth as we descend into it. And that may be true. Um, that may be true. And then, you know, it, it becomes even more important to write beautifully, to sing about the land, to write beautifully about it. If we're at its dying bedside, my God, you know, like let's leave words behind that, that represent it, that do it justice, that show our love for it. It seems more important than ever, no matter what happens in five years or 10 years or 25 years. Um, but I also believe in science and I believe that there are a lot of young people with a lot of great ideas, you know, coming up. And I believe if we got on the same page, you know, and when I say we, who do I mean, you know, the world, if the world got on the same page, more or less about acting to save ourselves, I think we could, you know, but, but, um, you know, we can't even wear masks to the post office. So, so that 
makes me worry <laughs> that, that we won't well, be able to get on the same page. I hate um, to see people kind of dig their heels in for, for any reason. Um, but I, I've tried to understand it over the past year. Um, I, I am interested to see what comes out of the new administration's environmental initiatives, including the 30 by 30 and things like that. Interested to see how, what kind of effects that will have and how slow or, or quickly those types of things will move, uh, will trickle down from that, that national policy. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, you know, one thing we learned in the last four years is that there's only so much we can do as individuals, but, um, I do think that, um, I do think that we, uh, we're going to be asked to bring all our compassion and all our generosity to bear on this crisis. Um, our compassion for the earth, our compassion for people who live in places that will become unlivable, which may frankly be us. <laughs> like we may be those people yeah. here in the desert Southwest. And so, um, you know, life, you know, one of the strange things I think about us, our generation, my generation, which is not your generation, is, you know, I've had nearly 60 years of not having to worry very much about my own survival. And I don't mean by that I'm wealthy, although I'm white and that helped. But, you know, I lived in my car for a long time, as I said. Uh, but, but, you know, there was never a massive catastrophe like a world war. Um, or like climate collapse that came along to threaten me. And so we have sort of made the mistake of thinking like we're owed something, like I'm owed 75 good years or 80 good years or, you know, and, and in fact, we're not, you know, the world is always in flux and tragedy is happening everywhere all the time. It just wasn't happening here to white people. <laughs> you know, like, so, so now it's here, now it's here fascism is on the rise and the climate is collapsing. And, you know, just like people for all time, just like Syrians or just like the people of Rwanda or just like the people, you know, of Darfur, we have to, we have to see how we're going to act now, you know, and hopefully we'll act in a way that allows us to keep our integrity and hopefully we'll act with love and compassion toward each other. And, you know, most especially to the earth because it has sustained us all this time. And it, no one knows what's gonna happen, but something's gonna happen. Oh, <laughs> and <God>. so, <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see how it goes. My biggest qualm right now is with the dummies who wanna go to Mars. You wanna leave paradise and fly off into the, you know, unforgiving, mm -hmm. unhospitable space. I, I don't understand that impulse to explore other planets when we've got so much work to do here right uh well there's the call from action from uh the call to action from from pam houston thank you so much for talking to me i'm really really uh honored to sit down with you and looking forward to reading more of your previous work and seeing um what you work on next i have a feeling you might be living in your van again pretty soon uh, <laughs> it's possible <laughs> hitting it hard <laughs> um, and good luck at this uh, Zapata Ranch this summer, and hopefully we'll get to meet in person at some time. All right. That sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Pam. Bye. Bye.